Well, with summer comes heat, and with heat comes hazard. As a loyal listener of the Live Inspired podcast, you know by now that Keeley Companies is the leader and the single source for construction, infrastructure, technology, development, logistics, and wireless. Keeley Companies also understands there is nothing more important than returning their team members home safely to the families each and every day. As we begin to head into the summer months, their very own safety, Ray, and I know Ray well, shares three keys to staying safe in the summer heat. Here they are. Rest, water, and shade. That's right. If you're going to be outside in these summer months, do not forget the importance of rest and water and shade. By empowering every team member to do their part and follow practical tips for safety, it's clear why Keeley Companies is recognized for their world-class safety program. You can learn more about it and about them at Keeley Companies by going to KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. You know by now that we bring you week after week, month after month, and season after season some of the most remarkable, inspirational guests from around the world. And today, well, you know, why not why not stay within our circle and keep bringing you some inspiration, some motivation, some incredible encouragement from one of the most remarkable guests. Our guest today is one of the most influential and inspirational Latinas in the world. She has overcome unbelievable adversity throughout her entire life. Rosie Rivera, that's her name. That's the name of our guest. And she's going to be a friend of yours by the end of it is a best-selling author. She's an international speaker and co-host of a successful marriage podcast titled The Power of Us. She's also the sister of famed Mexican-American music artist, many of you will recognize the name when I say it, Jenny Rivera. Today, Rosie shares about growing up in poverty, although she didn't know it at the time, the trauma of being sexually abused by a family member, and the heartbreaking loss of her cherished sister. It's an incredible story. It's a tragic story, and yet it's also one of the most redemptive, beautiful stories. My friends, I've had the opportunity of hearing on our Live Inspired podcast. Despite her own grief, Rosie chose, and she chooses still, to transform her struggles, her pain, and her emotions into actions, into work, and into love. This crucial conversation will empower you to face life's minor or major setbacks, situations, and challenges with courage, with compassion, with peace, and with faithfulness. I want to let our listeners know on the front side that today's conversation does include some explicit material. We're going to be having a conversation today at points around child sexual abuse, what she went through and how she began to take the next step forward in her journey. I want to make sure that all of our listeners are prepared for that on the front side and aware that on the back side of our conversation, we're going to share some helpful resources so that we all can take the next right step forward in our journeys. So buckle up, grab a tall glass of water, hot cup of coffee or tea, something to warm you up on the inside because you're going to be fired up to live your life fully after you hear this conversation with my friend and now yours. Her name is Rosie Rivera. So Rosie... Welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Well, sometimes I wish we recorded ahead of time because I feel like I'm already seated with a friend. Our <laughs> followers have heard me brag about you a moment ago, but for the folks who may not know you as well as I feel like I do, if you met someone, Rosie, like in a grocery store and you bump into their card <laughs> and after apologizing, you make small talk and then they tell you what they do. And then they're like, Rosie, huh? What do you do for a living? How do you how do you respond to that? For a living, what I do is I am the CEO of Jenny Rivera Enterprises and I'm an influencer. 
But both of those make me cringe just a little bit because in my heart of hearts, I am a transformational speaker, um, specifically a preacher or evangelist. And I would love to be in a room full of people like a church, uh, but I'm here, you know, I, I have 1.6 million followers on Instagram and sometimes I'm promoting creams. <laughs> so <laughs> for a living, I, I'm an influencer, but in, in my heart of hearts, I am an advocate for sexual abuse. Well, it's a story you and I are going to be talking about and unpacking and, um, and not shying away from, because I think it's one that affects far more people than we typically like to admit before we get into that abuse and before we get into your story and to, before we get into your 1.6 million followers and the oil that occasionally you promote and everything else and your faith that you, you live out and that you celebrate. I want to start with your childhood. I, you know, I, I view like our lives almost like trees. And if you, yeah, you, if one dies and you cut it down, you can see within the rings, the experiences that formed that greater tree. Yeah. In your childhood, I mean, you, you had quite a childhood. So would you talk about growing up? I'm also one of six. So talk about growing up one of six kids and what, what your life was like as a kid. Yes. I'm the, the youngest girl of six. I'm the baby and I was extra loved. You know, other people would call it spoiled. I call it extremely loved by everyone. My parents, well, now they're Mexican-American, they're citizens, but they they were immigrants. They migrated in about the 60s. It was eight of us living in a two-bedroom home with one bathroom. I don't know how we did it. My older brothers, you know, all piled up in the garage. So there was poverty but I wouldn't even know it. I really, really didn't even know it. My dad always had two to three jobs. My mom always had two to three jobs and my brothers and sisters kind of raised me. Mm. And uh, I have one sister, she passed away, but uh, I was born on her 12th birthday, uh, three hours later. So we're 12 years and a day apart. And she was my, my everything. My mentor, my friend, my best friend. And, um, I just had a great childhood full of love and full of a lot of playtime. Yes. And, and I, I'm just blessed to be from this very crazy family. So I'm curious, when did you recognize that you were poor? When I grew up and blessings came. It's, I think, you know, we've heard that in order to see the light, you have to know the dark. Well, mine was a little reversed. Uh, I, I mean, all I knew was like secondhand stores and swamp meats and uh, waiting for the government cheese. That was very normal to me. And there was no shame. And my father was never ashamed. Um, so I didn't even know to be ashamed. Um, I know one day when I was seven years old, I wanted to play with my my childhood friend. She lived down the block and they had just come up on a lot of money. And, and so that they had reconstructed their home. And I, like every other day, went to go play with her and they didn't let me in that time because they said, you're dirty. Even then I didn't understand, I was dirty. <laughs> I hate, you know, I was seven and always up in a tree or playing marbles with my brothers. It didn't even hit me then. I came home crying and I said, she doesn't want to play with me anymore. And that just fueled my dad because I said, I just wanted to see her two-story home. And my dad said, oh, we'll get you one. And two years later, he worked He worked everything. And uh, two years later, he had, we had moved. But even then, I didn't know we were poor um, until we, we grew up and, and blessings finally came that I said, oh, people shop at malls, <laughs> you know, and, but I'm glad I didn't know. I'm glad that there was always um, this love and honor and respect. I got all of the moral values without ever being stressed about a lack of money. They just didn't tell us. So I'd, I'd like you to talk about your mother. Would you just share like a, whether it's a favorite story, your characteristics, something that just will, will showcase for all of our listeners and viewers who your mom was. My mom is a warrior, even before she knew the Lord. She, I'll tell you one story that, wow, my mom needed a new molar. And so she was raising $200. It was back in the eighties and it took her a long time to raise this money. And when she was finally ready to get it, we were going to cross over to TJ because we didn't have dental insurance and couldn't get it here. So she was ready to go. She was so excited. I imagine she was in pain. And my dad said, but I have a new business idea. And she gave up those $200 
and my dad bought those pins that you put on your shirt and they were damaged. And so his idea was for the 19, it was 1984, for the 1984 Olympics, we were going to refurbish them and make them nice and then sell them outside. I mean, a little bit of legal piracy, but that's how we lived. And my mom, who had taken months and months to raise this money, um, supported her husband and said, okay, let's do it. And that is who my mom is. She would give up anything for her family. She sacrificed so much and she did it with love and she did it with support. And my dad had a hundred more of those crazy ideas before one of them finally hit and we were blessed. That's who she is to us. The, the woman that she's solid, she's resilient, that loved us through it. She was a woman that supported her husband for love of her children. Wow. That's a, such a beautiful story. And you mentioned mom was a hard worker. Your father held three jobs at a time and you were raised by your four brothers and your sister and family members. One of those family members was a woman named Jenny. Yeah. As you and I have a conversation today, we'll talk a bit more about Jenny, but as a child, who was Jenny to you? She was the coolest girl. I mean, she was 12 when I was born and she was pregnant when I was four. So 15, 16 and but she babied me she said that I was the best birthday gift she ever received she said she had prayed for me she was tired of living with boys (laughs) and that I was the only doll that they couldn't destroy she was the sweetest person yet super passionate (laughs) impulsive she had straight A's at school but would also be you know banned from school uh, because she was fighting so she was a tough one so we, we grew up in a very rough environment, not only because of four brothers, but we were rough in the city where we lived. We had to take care of ourselves um, physically. And, and she, it kind of made a very soft woman. She had a very soft heart with a, a, a hard looking exterior, even back then. But she was funny. She was caring, amazing, detail oriented. She made you seem like you were the only person in the room. Her time was yours. And, and I was her, her fan even before she sang. She was just my favorite person in the whole world. At what age did she begin singing? She started singing when she was 24. We call it accidentally because it, it wasn't something she wanted to do. Uh, my dad had been asking her to record and record. By this time, he had a recording label. And my older brother was singing. Um, again, that was also an accident. And so my dad kept asking her like, come on, come on, record an album for me. And she had stopped singing when she was 12. She would go with my dad to his singing contests. And one day my dad said, hey, you want to sing? And she said, okay. And she, she got up there on the stage. She was doing well, but she forgot the song. And so he scolded her and she had a very, very strong character and said, I'm never singing again. So from the age of 12, she was set that she'd never, ever pick up a microphone. And my dad never stopped asking her to do it. So at 24 for Father's Day, she recorded him a full album and gave it to him and said, Happy Father's Day, Dad, this is for you. Do whatever you want with it. And he promoted the heck out of it. And she became like a little local neighborhood star. And it grew from there. Succinctly, if you don't mind, tell us what it grew into. And then and then I want to come back to your childhood. But Talk about what what Jenny became as she grew, because I think some of our listeners, only after you share some of the success will remember her work, but she became one of the biggest icons in all of music internationally. Yes. Remind all of us about the work of Jenny Rivera. She is the only regional Mexican artist to fill out the Staples Center. And that's both both genres of male and female. After her passing, other males have filled out, sold out the Staples Center. But my sister goes as the first. Regional Mexican music wasn't as popular and no one thought that anyone could do it, much less a woman. She did all this while being a single mother of five, being overweight, not necessarily being a talented singer. She grew into her talent. But she, she sold about 22 million albums uh, worldwide, uh, which is mostly Mexico in the US. She was the highest paid regional Mexican singer and the, the most selling. So she would sell out every single show. This was about the last four or five years of her life. Um, and she, she had this career for about 20 years. So she, she worked and worked and worked um, until she reached that point. But she didn't know she was gonna reach that point. She, 
my dad always taught us just get food on the table. I mean, if we have to sell diapers, there's no shame in it. Just get food on the table. So when my sister started singing, it was, she was a businesswoman is what Jenny really was. And so she was doing amazingly in real estate back in those days. And she said, I'm not going to leave real estate for anything until something else is paying the bills. And so she was working real estate during the week, singer on the weekends uh, for a few years until singing really took off and, and she left real estate. But she said, I'm not necessarily an inter- a singer, I'm an entertainer. And even more than that, I'm a businesswoman. Hmm. I'm so glad she, at age 24, picked back up the microphone, went back into the studio and gave your father a Father's Day gift that uh, <laughs> I'm sure changed all of your lives. Yeah. Another thing that changed your life, because some of the experiences that I do are very positive. Mm-hmm. And some of the things, as you know, Rosie, better than most, mm-hmm. can be extraordinarily dark and negative. At age eight, you went through one of those types of experiences. Would you share to the degree that you're comfortable what happened to you at age eight? Well, my sister would babysit me because I didn't want to go to the swamp meet. <laughs> and, you know, my mom obviously trusted my sister. I trusted my sister. She was my best friend and I always wanted to hang out with her. And so by this time she, she had a four-year-old, uh, I was eight and she was pregnant with her second child. And she was having a very rough fight with her then husband. And so in order to cool things down because there was a lot of domestic violence, she stepped out to buy m- meatballs for the spaghetti that I had requested. And in that time that she was gone, um, her husband began to sexually molest me. And he said that it was a love game. And I trusted him because he was family. I had known him since I was four. And in our family, a brother-in-law is a brother. And he was an authority figure. And my sister loved him very much. And therefore, that's why I trusted in him, because I trusted her. And he used my innocence and said it was a game and that it was love. And just to make it very clear, it didn't hurt at first. And and I always state that when I speak this story, because as children, we think when it's painful, when it's physically painful, or when someone yells at you, then, then we know something's wrong. No red flags went off for me until I was, the game had already started and I froze and I didn't know how to say no. I remember I closed my eyes and just, was hoping that it would finish as soon as possible. Um, My niece walked in at that moment, she was four years old and he yelled at her. And that's when I knew something is very wrong now. Um, But I didn't know what to say. I I, I remember the feelings, like I feel dirty. I feel just something isn't right and and I'm gonna get in trouble. But he didn't say any of that to me. And, And that's kind of how it went a few more times until I turned nine. And I was in sex ed class in the fifth grade. And in that class, I realized what was going on. And I was so upset, so upset that I threw up. Mm. I puked right there in class out of anger. And that's so important to, to take note because anger can come in. And, I, and if you hold on to it, it can take over your character. And it started to take over my character. I was only nine years old. And so... My wish has always been, oh, I wish I was sweet and kind, like, you know, just a doll that everyone loves. And by the age of nine, I was already raging with anger because I felt fooled. I felt dumb. Um, I was the straight A student, but felt like someone has been tricking me this whole time and, and I didn't even catch on. How could I have avoided it? I started victim blaming myself. No one even did it. So Before someone else victim blames, please know that the victim has already done it to herself or himself so many times. We've already asked all the questions that you're asking. What was I wearing? Why did he want me? What, how did I provoke him? We've asked ourselves, but, but it's, it's even hard to, to, for us to know that we're not at fault. Um, That's why I'm very careful with victim blaming. And if you want your children to speak to you about these things, please be very careful on how you react to a story that you may see on the news, because your child may feel that you'll take that same reaction with them. So, well, because I knew what was going on now, I grew bold. And the next time he came to to touch me, which was now getting more and more aggressive, now it was hurting. um, I, I, for the first time said no. And he was very, very angry and he yelled at me and he covered up my mouth 
with his hand. And I don't forget that because it was very scary. And I feel like he robbed my voice physically, but also emotionally, he threatened me. He said, if you say anything, I'll kill Jenny. So he knew what my weakness was. It wasn't to kill me. I wasn't afraid of dying, but I was afraid that she would die. And that fear remained in me my whole life and until she did die. And I, I lived it alone. I really thought he could kill her with the, with the domestic violence that I saw. It was, it was very probable. And if not, she was going to kill him. And even though I hated him, I didn't want to be, I didn't want his blood on my hands. I didn't want to be at fault for someone dying. So by the time I was nine or 10, I had thought all this through and thought, I just need to take this by myself. I, I can't have my sister crying. I can't have my mom crying. I'm going to save this whole family and whatever plan he had. I'm like, I can't believe that a nine-year-old was thinking that like, I'm going to take this all in by myself and he's not going to win. And uh, by the time I was 16, I spoke up because he threatened to take the kids away. So mm -hmm. one threat gave me silence and one threat catapulted me into speaking up. And thank God Jenny believed me. Um, my whole family did. There was one aunt that doubted, and that's very painful. Um, but they, my family took action, and we made a police report that day. That is very important. Any action, it can be any any positive action that shows the victim that that they matter, not necessarily hurting him. Because some of my brothers did want to go kill him, but my oldest brother is a pastor, and he calmed all of us down. And let us know God's going to handle this. Let's do it the right way. My father would also not break the law. He said, I am not going to break the law. We're going to, the police will do it. They'll catch him. But then he became a fugitive. He somehow found out and was gone for another nine years. And I think those nine years were the hardest of like, they're, the secret's out. Why is nothing happening? Why does no one care? And, and it, was, it was more difficult maybe than living in, in silence. Gosh. I mean, there's just so much there and my heart aches for the eight-year-old who was abused and for the nine-year-old who thought she needed to keep it to herself and and then for the brave little 16-year-old who kind of finally came forward and then for the brothers who wanted revenge and you wrote and I'm going to read this quote to you and then I'd like you to tell me what it means to you today for 18 years I battled with trauma and depression because of that sexual abuse once I was healed I was also set free and I wanted to share that hope with all survivors. So I began speaking to anyone who would listen. When you hear that today, these are your words. Um, tell me what they mean. I love that boldness because I had sworn never to speak. I had made a vow that I would never, ever, ever speak. It was shameful. It was embarrassing. Um, but when the Holy Spirit healed me, I couldn't keep it to myself. In fact, uh, I felt, I, I remember eight-year-old Rosie who would just watch TV and, and think, uh, is this real? Can someone talk about it? Can someone verify? Can someone confirm what I'm living? Because your mind plays tricks on you. And I would think either it only happens to me or it's happening to a lot more people and we're not talking about it. So I would just pray that someone would talk about it. Someone on TV, that's all we had back then. So now when I am healed, when I, when I am on my healing journey, I think of eight-year-old girls now, eight-year-old boys now, and that I could be that voice, that I could be the one that they will see on social media, in their school, in a juvenile hall, wherever. And they happen to hear my story and say, hey, I'm not alone. And that is one of the things that fuels me every day to speak about this topic. So, and now some of our audience might be thinking, well, is there a need? Is there really a need for this voice to be elevated? And I'm going to share a couple stats that I borrow from you. And I've seen them before. One in four girls will be assaulted and one in nine, I believe, boys will be sexually assaulted. So first, when you hear those stats, Another thing you've said frequently in your speeches, in your books, and in your podcasts that I've listened to is hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of hurt people hurting people. Yep. Where do we begin to push back to see these statistics radically changed? Right. That I believe that one of the biggest weapons that an abuser can have is our silence. If he would think 
she's going to speak up. He would not do it. Mm. Um, I've been, I've, I've experienced a girl, a young girl who heard my story. She was seven. I don't know how she heard it. I don't remember her, but I went to go speak here at Catalina Island and was promoting my first book and something, someone tried to assault her, a family member tried to assault her a few weeks later. And she remembered me and she spoke up that day and action was taken swiftly. One pedophile can have 22 victims on average, about 22. And so it, if we would speak up more and we, and we allowed our children to know that they, when they speak up, we would believe them, we would back them up, we would be with them, then I think abusers would be fearful of us speaking up. They might, I can't say they wouldn't have the urges or what is going on psychologically with them, but I know that they, they are afraid that we do speak up, that we will speak up. And, and I, I was just so ecstatic to hear that that little girl immediately and, and her healing process can begin sooner and she won't go through the 18 years of trauma that I went through. And so I believe let's take away that weapon. Let's speak up. I, I, let's over communicate if necessary, but it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual abuse or you don't have to say molestation. I have three children and I began to speak with my children about the beauty of and the value of their body. Um, but then also letting them know I'm here to listen to you. Whatever you say to me is important and interesting. So for example, my, my child was probably four or five or six. I would hear whole episodes of Dora the Explorer, detail by detail. <laughs> I would sit there and listen as if it were the most important thing in the world because it was important to her. Yes. And I would ask her, who do you eat with? Who are your friends at school? What is your best friend's name? Because she knew mama cares what I have to say. And that avenue of communication has grown and grown and grown. So my goal is whatever they're going through, that they could come and tell mama or someone of influence and, and, and intelligence and love around me. And so I've even lifted up people around me, grandmas, aunts, bonus mom, so that if you can't tell me, please tell someone. And that avenue of communication is very, very important. Rosie. I think you've spoken now to the guardians and the parents and the grandparents who love their babies and they're trying to keep them safe. And you're talking about communication and celebrating their little one's body and paying attention to what they care about and making sure the line of communication is completely wide open. I'd like you to speak to those who are listening right now, who at one point in their life, apparently one in four ladies, one in four girls, one in nine boys were sexually assaulted. What do they do with that pain? You wrestled with it for a lifetime. Share with us some of the lessons that you've learned that maybe we can apply in our lives. Surrendering your pain is important, but that doesn't mean it's not valid. So I would begin with validating your pain. You are right for being angry. What was done to you was horrific and wrong, and you're angry about it, and your anger is not a sin. But don't live in your anger. Don't don't allow your anger to overcome you. You can control that emotion. What I do, even now, I still go through some things, not as horrific, thank God, but different things in my life. And I've learned to, to identify the true emotion. Anger may be the first emotion you go to, but it's a secondary emotion. What are the, the what's under it? Is it fear? Is it, is it pain? Is it humiliation? What's under it? identify that emotion, feel it, allow yourself to feel it, honor it and say, Hey, I am mad because he stripped me of my childhood. I, that's a valid reason. And then honor it and let it go, mm -hmm. let it go. And, and sometimes you have to do it more than once. Sometimes it can be a daily thing. And, and I've learned, I don't have to hide my emotions. I don't have to pretend that they're not there. Um, I, I vent to the correct person. Um, I have gone through therapy. There are so many different ways. Um, sometimes what helped was getting on a hotline where no one could see my face and I could say everything that I wanted and they wouldn't judge me because I didn't know them and they didn't know me. And other seasons of my life, I would tell my pastor, I would, I would, I would tell my mom. So it will change. Allow yourself to go through the journey, not sticking to only one 
defense mechanism or one's survival mechanism, they can change. But in short, honor your feelings, feel them, and then release them so that they don't take control of you. You write beautifully about the, the desire for revenge. You know, even a moment ago, you spoke about your brothers. They're ready to kill this guy. Yeah. And by the way, I don't blame them. You know, right. I don't blame them. You also probably had your own sense of what you wish you could do to this guy, mm -hmm. knowing what also he had done to his to your beautiful sister and among, among others. What do you do with revenge? And not only your case, but all of us have been harmed in life. Then what do, mm -hmm. what do we do as we seek revenge on those who have harmed us in the past? I wanted revenge for 18 years in my life. Yeah. And then it just left me exhausted because there were things that I am limited in. And I started to notice when I did take revenge, it would ultimately always come to harm me back. After 18 years of, of wanting and seeking revenge, of planning it out, I noticed that I had lost focus of my dreams. I had dreams, huge dreams. And I had lost that focus and, and even let them die away. I had become bitter. I was so angry all the time. I thought I could only be angry at the abuser, but it spills over. You think, oh, I can control that anger and only be angry at this time to this person. That is not the truth. It is, it is so dangerous that if you allow yourself to live in anger, then you're, then you're mad at, I was mad at all men and then all humanity and then God and then myself. And, and so you, it became a part of my personality. And so at the age of 25, I just surrendered it. I, I surrendered the, the, the emotions, not saying that they're good or bad, but just I was tired of having them. And I, I really let go of being the judge. Sometimes when we've been injured, we want to be the judge, also the jury, also the defense attorney. We even want to be the private detective. And we are exhausted from all the roles we have put on ourselves when in reality we were the victim we're the defendant and i didn't even want to be the victim anymore i was tired of being the victim i had been sexually abused from 8 to 11 but sometimes i had re-victimized myself and i was just exhausted i didn't want that anymore so i surrendered it to god and i said you do what you have to do you're the one you are going to be the judge. Here are all the facts. And I really even wrote them down. Here is what I feel he did to me. Take him to a spiritual court and you handle that. And I focused on healing. When I finally stopped trying to get revenge and focused on healing, everything in my life changed. And I pray that we can all focus on healing. Let justice be done. And please understand that his pain will not heal you. His pain, his demise, his loss will not heal you. You can heal before it because sometimes we're waiting when he's in jail, then I'll be happy. Well, he wasn't in jail for 18 years. What if I could have worked on my healing, focused on my healing and, and been free for 18 years by the time justice came, which is a victory. And yes, it's good. It's a victory for community as a whole. He won't have any more victims. It's a victory for me. It's a victory for so many girls. But I didn't have to wait to be healed. And I thought that I did. So I would say to all of us, whether it's a bad Yelp review or someone yelling at us at, for, at a, in a parking lot, whatever it can be, it can be arguing with your husband over a dirty garage. I mean, I still go through that. And I write about it in the book. <laughs> and, and I still want to get Abel alone. OK, we'll come back to that later. I'm going to chill out of the garage. Hashtag poor Abel is what they say. <laughs> um, it's, it's really saying, I'm not going to take that role. I, I get off that judge bench and I say, but it is my responsibility to heal. The injustice may not be your fault, but healing is your responsibility. No one else's. So if no one else is there to cheer you on and get you out of bed to take you to a, a counselor or a therapist, it is your responsibility, especially when you have others depending on you. When I became a, a person that was focused on her healing, in, I became a better mother. I became a better wife. I became a better person for me, for me, because um, I could identify things. I was taking care of my triggers. I wasn't allowing that anger to, to be taken out on my husband, at least less. Sometimes I, you know, but it is definitely less. And so I would say to answer your question, 
let the revenge go, leave it in the correct hands of people of the God that truly has the power to do it. Let him be God. He's going to do it on his time, the way he sees fit and focus on your healing. And that will radically transform your life. Drop the mic. Fortunately, we have more time together with Rosie today. So we're going to keep going forward with her. Thankfully, that was such a beautiful response and such great advice. You take the medicine that you're giving out now to everybody else. You begin reflecting on this, journaling on this, eventually even thinking about writing a book about this experience. One of the individuals you shared this idea to was a woman named Jenny. Your sister. Yeah. When you told Jenny, hey, Jenny, uh, yeah, not only was I sexually abused by your husband, but I'm, I'm healing and I'm considering writing a book about this. How did she respond? You know what? It's, she came up with the idea. I, I was standing and I'll never forget. It was that day when I first told her about the sexual abuse. She's holding my hand because I have to tell a police officer, a male police officer, and he needs details. And I, I would just tears streaming down my face. I was nervous. I couldn't do it. And my sister is holding my hand with a stern, just strong. I think she was just holding in as much strength as she could. And we finished the police report. The police officer finally goes away. And I say that because it's just tough to retell that story and to, to a police officer, to a stranger. And my sister looks at me and says, sister, you should write a book. I look at her and I said, girl, you are crazy. Do you see this mess? Like do you, all of us, because my whole family was there. Do you see? I, I am not in any place. And honestly, who cares? I'm not famous. You're famous. Who would care about what's happening to Rosie? And she says, because it's not only your story, it's millions and millions of people's story. But I thought she was crazy. When I, she would ask me every year and I love her because she wouldn't tell my story without my permission and my consent. And that is so important. It was her story too, because it was her husband and it was her first child, but she, but she respected my timing and when I was ready to speak. So every year she would just call me once in a while and say, Hey sister, are you ready to speak? I am not ready. I am. And okay. It's okay. Whenever you're ready, I'm here. And finally, when I was 25, uh, I wrote her an email. And I said, hey, sister, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to start selling Mary Kay. And, you know, still had to pay bills because I'm going to start writing my book. And I cherished this email with all my heart. She was so proud. She said, I am so proud of you. I am with you. I, I will walk this journey with you. You're going to change lives. And, and I cherished that email um, because that was in 2012, about seven months before she passed away. So let's talk about December 9th, 2012. Um, mm -hmm. How did you hear about your sister's plane crash? I received a phone call from my older brother, Lupe. He's the, he's the first famous person in the family. His name is Lupio. And he will usually serenade us at night. If he gets enough <laughs> drinks in them, he'll, and we love it. I, he, you know, I record them. So he started calling at about four or five in the morning and I thought, oh, cool. I'll, you know, I'll let it go to voicemail, but he never stopped calling. Usually it's two or three calls. He kept and he kept calling. 8 a.m. I finally answered. And the first thing that he said is, Rosa, promise me that you'll stay calm. And I knew something was terribly wrong, but, but I keep my word. He knows that I, that if I said, I'll do it, I'll do it. So I, I decided in that moment, whatever happens, stay calm. Mm -hmm. And I think I've lived that for the past eight years. I've only allowed myself to, to lose it maybe three times, really, really scream it out and, and cry. And uh, he said, Jenny's plane is missing. And so my first hope was, well, let's find it and let's find her. And even after we found the plane, we were all hoping maybe she ran away. Maybe she never got on the plane. Maybe, maybe they sequestered her. What are we going to sell to get her back? And then we saw her foot on the internet. I recognized it. We all recognized it. And even then we said, well, then she's limping somewhere. We got to go find her. And my brothers, three of my brothers went and to, to Monterey, Mexico, and two of them hiked up that mountain trying to find her. Um, but they, they sadly only saw pieces of all of them. There's so much in your response 
to uh, that date and to that phone call and to as you learn more. And then you mentioned almost like in passing that the media starts putting out their pictures of your sister, not on stage where she'd been the night before and was going the following evening, but pictures of your sister in pieces. This is your sister. For them, it's gossip. It's fodder. It's going to sell papers and get people to click. But for you, this is so personal. This is a little girl who helped raise you and who you adored. In addition to losing your best friend, you then become in charge of her estate, which to some of us, oh, that sounds lovely. Not at all in this case. There are tons of pieces. It's coming at you from every different direction. Everybody wants a piece of it. Would you talk a little bit about your responsibility, not only grieving after your sister's passing, but serving as a professional, as the CEO of your sister's estate after her death? My biggest fear was her death because I had been threatened with it. And so I am facing the biggest fear. My, my worst nightmare has come true. I'm trying to stay calm the way I promised my brother. I'm trying to take care of my mother because she, she is not okay. And her five children who are ranged from the age of 12 to 28 at that point, but that we still consider, not consider children, but take care of them as such. And, and this brought back up my post-traumatic stress disorder, but I, did, I didn't realize it. I started having nightmares, um, cold sweats in the middle of the night. I, it was horrible. And then there are media in front of my house for at least a month, reporters chasing our car and trying to figure out every single detail of her funeral and trying to see anything. It was the scariest thing to fall apart in front of the world. <laughs> While I can't fall apart because I have a multi-million dollar estate that I have to take care of. If it were just money, if it were my money, you can handle your money, but this isn't money anymore. Right. In my eyes, it's a minute of her life. She died working for her children. And so it's not just, oh, it's a dollar. Now it's, that's a, that's a minute I lost with her. That's a minute my mother lost with her daughter. That's a minute her children lost. I became very careful in how I handled her money while being emotionally connected. And so it's, it's so tangled. And I, I did grief therapy and it really helped, but getting over that post-traumatic stress disorder again, which had gone away because I was healed from the sexual abuse, reliving it in front of millions of people made it very difficult. And so sometimes just the fact that I would, I was able to stand up and even smile some days um, was miraculous to me. My understanding is you were able to stand up on most days, smile on many days, take care of everybody else, but it had an effect on you physically and emotionally and spiritually. And then the consequence of that is you took it out on your new husband. That oh, yeah. new in your relationship, you know, you're just newlyweds for the most part. You haven't figured out life. No. You don't know really which way is up. Your sister has just died tragically in a plane crash. It makes international news. There's pictures that should not have been on the internet, now on the internet and in the tabloids, and they're chasing the funeral procession and everything else. And somehow you got to keep it all together. And what begins to fray first is your family. Rather yeah. than talking about the fray, how did you begin to put that back together? Because I know a lot of our listeners right now, Rosie, they're just struggling in a relationship, maybe with a sibling or a parent or a friend or a, a spouse or themselves. And they want like, how do I get this back to where I know it could be? In your marriage, how did you begin to take the next right step to grieve together, but also to live together? I began to allow myself to be vulnerable. He had only seen strong Rosie <laughs> and I didn't want him to see broken Rosie. And so in that fight to appear strong, I would appear angry and I was angry, but I, I started to allow him to see the brokenness. And I started to appreciate that he wouldn't leave. I appreciate that so much. I mean, God has held us together, but the fact that he will not leave his family is amazing. And there's been times that I've, I've told him to leave and he's, he'll leave for 30 minutes and then he'll come back. So Abel's will to honor his family and honor his role as a father and as a husband. And all I had to do was appreciate him. That's it. 
respect him and appreciate him. And sometimes it's harder to do, at least for me, I don't know other women out there, but sometimes I don't, I'm like, how do I respect you? What do I say? <laughs> but when I do, he will really hold on to it. Um, so in any relationship, whether it's a death in the family or financial issues, really, really appreciate, respect and honor each other. And, and we've both got it wrong, but in the moments that we get it right, we grab onto it. We try and remember the better moments. We don't ignore the bad moments. We work through them, all that. But we hold on. The, the, the good moments have much more value than the spats. And, and that's how we have to, to balance it out. You have a niece who's been sexually assaulted. Your sister was abused. You were abused. You lost your sister in a plane crash. You've had massive struggles that we don't have time to unpack right now. Like just... <laughs> Crazy. And yet, as I read you, it seems like these adversities are drawing you closer to God and making your faith, you know, God is your defender is your most recent book. It seems like it's, it's making your faith even more real when many would be saying, here's farther proof that he is not real. Here's farther proof that he is not loving. Here's farther proof that he's not really part of my story. So for you, as you go through these, these massive challenges. What is it that keeps drawing you back toward God? I, right. The drawing me back is key because I have the same thoughts. It's not that I never doubt. I ask my husband, I ask my friends, I ask my family, please remind me, please not over communicate that God, that it's going to be okay. That God's going to come through, remind me how he's never failed. And then I make it my priority to, to continue to read the word, even when I don't feel like it, to continue to do what I know, which is worship. But I had the same questions and I tried it on my own. I, I said, he doesn't care. He's not there. He's taking too long, all of it. And I just realized that whenever Rosie tries it on her own, I usually mess it up. And I, I don't want to mess it up anymore for myself and for others. So what I have understood is he's going to do it on his own time. And it's better for me. And that's just what I hold on to sometimes. God is for me. He's for you, Rosie. God is for you. I, even if it looks the whole opposite and the opposite way, he is for you. And I'll just remind myself of that. And he, he is for me. And I just remember of every time he, little itty bitty things, things that I, it wasn't even a prayer. It was, wouldn't it be cool if, and then a few years later, it happens. More than anything, it's the timing that I battle with. Why are you taking so long? Have you forgotten? Let me remind you again. Um, I know God is good, though. I decided to believe it. I just decided it. If the word says it, if he has shown it, he is good. And as soon as I remind myself, I kind of look at the situation and say, he's going to say this. He's going to use this for his glory. And he's never failed. And, and if he, he's not going to start with me, he never failed so many people. And he's definitely not going to start with Rosie. And I, I do ask him, let me know you in this. What are you trying to teach me in this? Let me learn the lesson quickly and let's move on. I don't know where else I could go, you know, because I tried to live without God. My mama used to tell me, I used to tell her she was crazy because she believed in God. My poor mother, you're crazy. And she used to tell me, no girl, you're crazy. If you think you could live this life without God you really are. So then well, by the time I tried it, I saw, I don't understand how I can live without him. Just me personally, I don't know how I could, and I don't want to anymore. So when there are moments that I do want to walk away, that I do want to just say, okay, God, I'm done with this walk. I'm going to walk back this way. He reminds me, well, where can you go where there's peace? Where have you ever felt peace like this? Where can you go where you see the truth? And there isn't, for me, there's nowhere else where I feel peace other than when, when I'm with him, even in the midst of a storm. Beautifully stated. And, you know, we could spend the next 42 hours talking about some of your podcast with your co-host. His name is Abel. He's also your husband. I love your banter. And I love that you, on your show, it almost is like you're letting us into your dinner table conversation. The kids are finally in bed and you're like, let's talk about that fight we had today. Like, and I'm like, Rosie, turn off the mic. We can hear you guys. So it's a really cool, intimate conversation you have together. Your books, my broken pieces, powerful. God is your defender just came out. What's next for you, Rosie? I want to continue to speak about God to anyone that'll hear me wherever I am. So I used to think it was going to be within the four walls of a church, but now I've learned just wherever 
my husband is a worshiper. So I, I, I yearn and I plan uh, and I desire to be at the Staples Center one day. He's going to be worshiping. My children will be serving God and I will be speaking to women and men all over the world. And we'll, we'll do that together. That's my dream. Will, you, will you be speaking from the Staples Center in English or Spanish? Because I've heard you do both. I, I mean, Friday night is going to be English and Saturday is going to be Spanish. <laughs> it, or we'll get translators. I, I pray that Sarah Jake Roberts and Christine Kane and Joyce Meyer and Steve Furtick, we can all, I dream big. And that's what my daddy taught me. So dream, dream little girl dreams. Because as a little girl, there are no limits. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's my dream of dreams. I'm stepping away right now from Jenny Rivera Enterprises. Yeah. Uh, I've been doing it for eight years. I think the Lord has just allowed me the strength and the privilege to do this, but now it's time to, to step away. So I'm training the next person in line that my sister left and I'm excited. I'm excited for you about it. And, and Rosie, we end every episode with our guests with seven questions that tether all of them together. We call them the live inspired seven so okay. if you have just a moment more with me to share with our community, question number one is what is the most influential book that you have ever read? Other than the Bible? <laughs> you could begin with the Bible and then give us another one. East of Eden. So good. John Steinbeck. Yeah. What yeah. was it about East of Eden that you're like, oh, people have to check this out. I just found myself in so many of the characters. I really reflected with, with the, the good in me and the bad in me. Um, I, I, he was just, he did great in revealing to me who I could be. And just, uh, the, the Abel and Cain story of you, you could give in to sin. No doubt. You may, it's up to you. And, and it really reminded me, I have a choice whether I give in or not. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up with four big brothers and one big sister that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? My ability to forgive quickly. It was, it was much easier to forgive quickly back then. I think I forgive now, but it takes a little longer. <laughs> well, you're an example of what it looks like in action and it is powerful and redemptive and so, so rare to see people who really try and strive to forgive. It sets, it sets you free and you're, you're, you're beautiful at it. Question number three is if your home caught fire and Abel is out safely, and your three children are out safely, and your family's all out, and the pets are all out, and you have an opportunity to run into the home and grab one thing. What's the one thing you would grab? I have a folder full of our birth certificates, pictures, drawings, uh, USBs with everything. So it, I know exactly where it is. I've already planned it, and I know exactly where to go and run out with it. If you could sit, it sounds like you're prepared. So you're probably prepared for the next question as well. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be seated next to? I would love to have one more conversation with my sister. What would you tell her that you think somehow she needed to hear again or you needed to share with her again? I would actually ask her what she felt as with the sexual abuse. She took, so, she took care of me so well that I never realized how much it could have affected her. And so I would, I would just ask her and let her express to me mm. what it felt like from her end. So just to listen. Mm -hmm. What's the best advice that Jenny or your mother, father, brothers, spouse, or anybody else ever gave you? So what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, I was about 60 pounds overweight, sitting on the couch, eating chocolate. And my sister walks in and I'm crying. And my sister walks in and says, what's wrong? And I said, I'm ugly. She said, you're not ugly, not, not ugly. And I said, I'm fat. And she says, well, <laughs> you could sit there and pity yourself, or you can get off your butt and we can do something about it. So I paid a lot of attention to the fact that I have a choice. I can, I could sit there or I can get up. But the fact that she said the word we, mm -hmm. she was going to help me through it. She didn't have to. So now I take that role of, I will help you. If you want to get off the couch or out of bed and do something, you don't have to do it alone. I can help you. Um, just waiting for people to make that choice. Beautiful.
So every day I tell myself you not every day, but on tough days, you can get you can get your butt up and do something about it. What would you tell your 20 year old self? What advice does she need to hear? Oh, it gets better. Life gets better. You're going to make it through. Uh, you're going to lose the weight. You're going to have a gorgeous child. And, and there is truly a lot of people that love you. Mm. But begin loving yourself first. Rosie Rivera, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? She was a, a bold woman of faith who loved well. <laughs> Rosie Rivera, you are indeed a bold woman of faith, of love, of forgiveness, <laughs> of unbelievable courage. You do love well. And I appreciate you sharing part of your life story with John O'Leary and our listeners today. It's been a great honor getting to know you. And to take us out, we're going to be playing a portion of Jenny Rivera's La Gran Sonora. It's a song that shows Jenny's bold personality and her strength through her song and through her life. Thank you so much. I loved all your questions. Thank you for a great interview. My friends, that is Rosie Rivera. I am John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live inspired. Tenemos que hablar de mujer a mujer. Hay que dejar unas cosas en claro. Te guste, tienes que entender. Lo que es mío es mío y no voy a soltar. What a beautiful song. Again, that is La Gran Sonora by Rosie Rivera's talented and famous and remarkable sister, Jenny Rivera. My friends, Rosie's courage, her compassion, her perseverance is incredible. Of the numerous notes that I scribbled during the conversation, I want to share just a couple things with you as we get ready to wrap up this program today. Number one is this. Healing is your responsibility. I'm going to say that again. Healing is your, it is my, it is our personal responsibility. After 18 years of seeking revenge of her abuser, Rosie found herself living in anger and beat down by it keeping her in a hole of depression and taking away her character. But then she surrendered. She surrendered to the pain. Rosie validated the emotions she was experiencing. This important step allowed her to relinquish the pain and finally ultimately find a lasting peace. She surrendered the pain. She took the next right step. It took her 18 years and it's possible for each of us in our journeys as well. And I want to share also this quote. One of the biggest weapons an abuser can have is our silence. You heard this earlier in the episode. I'm going to share it again with you right now. One of the biggest weapons an abuser can have is our silence. Well, Rosie shared how she empowers her three children to know the value and the beauty of their bodies and fosters strong avenues of communication beginning at an early age. In the busyness of our lives, building trusting relationships with your children, whether that is your natural child or a nephew, a niece, a neighbor, a school-age child, it is our most important role. The way we can do that, my friends, is to, ready for it, do some simple activities like put down the phone, turn off the television, ask questions, meet them at their level, and listen just listen. Listen to your kids talk about their day, talk about their challenges, talk about their life, talk about the new friends they met during lunch. What did they eat for lunch? Was it good? What trick they learned at a soccer practice today? Keep asking them about them. Build that relationship. End the sentences with question marks and listen. Listen, I recognize we all face trauma in our lives whether that trauma is due to a painful divorce or bankruptcy, a natural disaster, something we went through as a child. A trauma is anything that leaves you feeling like you've lost your control, your safety, your identity, and a piece of your life. On the Live Inspired Podcast, episode 91, and some of you loyal listeners remember that one, we interviewed Dr. Laurie Nadel, who specializes in overcoming trauma. She shares the tools and the techniques used with helping those impacted specifically by September 11th, the attacks that took place then, Hurricane Sandy, and much, much, much more. 
you'll want to learn more about that episode. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at johnolearyinspires.com. But again, for those tech savvy among you, just swing on over to episode 91 with Dr. Laurie Nadel. My friends, I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode. I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired community. And I want to remind you for this time and until next time that my name is John O'Leary. And this is your day. Live Inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture focused on people and customer-centric approach, we're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at KeeleyCompanies.com.